Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian. Don't label me a filmmaker, comedian, man. I don't need your rules. I rebel against everything, man. Yeah, I was hoping that there would be some, uh, some like jive talking in there from you but um, that is a good way to capture this movie that we're about to talk about in this season of awesome movie year we have been talking about the films of 1953 and we are here at jason's pick and a bit of an unconventional approach jason took to his pick so uh, what what did you pick for us to talk about jason so i picked the wild one starring marlon brando the preeminent film of uh, biker culture, the one that started the whole trend. And for a few seasons now, I've kind of floated the idea to you guys. What if we picked movies on our picks that we've never seen, you know? And uh, this was as good a year as any to try it, because as you know, I'm not that familiar with 1953. I had never seen this film, but obviously I knew of its reputation and influence. So uh, I thought it would be a good experiment. and. uh, like the rest of 1953, it falls right in line. <laughs> so a failed experiment, perhaps, we might say. I mean, the experiment succeeded. Yeah. You know? I did. Mm-hmm. We did pick the movie and watch it, and now we're covering it. Right. So. That is a low standard. We successfully watched the movie in order to talk and about it. And recorded a yes. podcast about it. I mean, it. I feel like if we failed that, we would just we would just not have a podcast. So uh, those, yeah. are, those are really the, the basic standards here. So, yeah, I don't. I'm I'm joking, but obviously I don't think that this was a bad idea necessarily. This is a notable movie. And I remember, I think, in our very first season when we were figuring out how do we want to approach this whole thing overall, we talked about that idea. Like, should we pick movies that we hadn't seen but wanted to see from a given year? And we've really not gone that way. It's generally been movies that we really like and want to kind of share with each other or promote to our listeners. And I think that's worked out well for the most part, but this is another approach. And uh, I am with you, Jason. I think this is my least favorite movie, perhaps, of this season thus far. So I'm I'm with you on this one, maybe not being a great experiment for us. Uh, Josh, I got to tell you, if you consider this worse than The Robe, this is about half the running time. You're just a fool. Well, I I'm I'm I gave these the same rating spoiler on uh, on Letterboxd, and so they're they're about even for me, I guess. And if you do want to judge by how long you have to spend watching them, I suppose this one does win out because it is only 79 minutes long. And if you're not enjoying it, it will be over soon. Josh, if I'm not mistaken, when we were covering the Corman movie in 1967, the trip, we kind of went back to his earlier films and talked about you know kind of uh his moves into making these biker culture movies and it all stems from this one and we have covered marlon brando before it's crazy that we're covering two marlon brando movies uh on this that like neither of us really like when he outputted so much work that was so worth worthwhile and legendary but uh 
But here we are, Josh, riding along that highway. We are. I think this is our third Marlon Brando movie that we haven't liked. So really, we're we're out to well, get Marlon Brando on this podcast. What was uh, I'm missing? Well, we had one, we I had the we Island of Doctor Moreau, and then right, we had a Countess right. from Hong Kong, or maybe we had the other one first. I don't know, but not not neither of which are highlights of his filmography for anyone no. really. This one, however, is one of his most notable roles, even if it's not necessarily considered a great movie anymore. But I think your comparison to Roger Corman is actually really good because a lot of what Corman did, and we talked about this with The Trip, is he saw some kind of trend in the larger culture and figured out how can I exploit this and make it a movie. And with The Trip, it was all about LSD and the the sort of drug culture, hippie culture or whatever. And here, this was inspired by this sort of moral panic over biker gangs based on the uh, so-called Hollister riot, which took place in 1947 in Hollister, California, during a motorcycle rally where uh, there were some rowdy bikers. But it sounds like, I mean, this is just from reading basically Wikipedia and a little bit beyond that it was something where the media really played up the idea that this was dangerous and nothing even to the level of what happens in this movie happened there. But because it became sort of a something in the zeitgeist and it, it got widely reported and people had this impression of like, oh, these young hoodlums are dangerous with their motorcycles, then uh, it was ripe for exploiting in a movie. And Josh, I can tell you from experience, if I can tell you a story, you just uh, committed a major sin against bikers. You called them a gang. Uh, at one point in time, I was performing at a late night show and there were a bunch of bikers there. And I said, what's the name of your gang? And they said, we're not a gang, we're a club. And I said, cool, what's the name of your gang? And they said, if you call us a gang again, we're going to take you out to the parking lot and beat the shit out of you. And I said to them, there's no better way to prove that you're not a gang than by beating the shit out of someone in a parking lot with a bunch of people who are dressed exactly like you. Yeah, that is. I'm glad that you're alive. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that's that's true that um, on the one hand, I think there are probably a lot of motorcycle clubs that are completely innocuous and don't deserve to be lumped in with dangerous groups that we might call gangs. And of course, the term gang now, especially, but I'm sure even back in the 1950s has a very negative connotation. Um, but on the other hand, this movie is definitely showing the gang like behavior of these groups in, in their, I mean, you know, it's not the stones at Altamont here, Josh, this, is, this isn't that. No, it's bad not, it's not that into. bad, but I think especially in the idea of the, the rival gangs where they can't coexist peacefully, they have to have, there's violence every time they meet each other and things like that. And it's all very mild violence in this film really. But, but the, the manner of behavior I think is what we would associate with gangs. Yeah, maybe this is more of a legacy point, but what I mostly took from this movie is how much more effective this kind of, let's say, rebel without a cause was played yes. in just a few years later uh, from a film standpoint. You know? Right. This is not a very dramatically satisfying representation of this concept, uh, nor nor is it accurate. So I think we want one or the other. If it was really great drama, we might forgive the fact that it was completely phony in terms of the real way that motorcycle clubs operate, but it's really not. So um, 
I couldn't find any box office uh, info on this film. I'm guessing it was relatively successful. It did capitalize on that trend and it created trends of its own that I'm sure we'll talk about. And it was a major early role for Marlon Brando, um, a key part of sort of his image that he established here in the 1950s. So my guess is that it was successful, but I can't say for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's a legendary movie and it's a cult movie. We could have put this as our cult classic. But, you know, in Britain, it was banned for 14 years. But the more I read about it, they were like, yeah, it was banned. But there were like film societies showing it. It did great in either Northern Ireland or Scotland, you know, so it just kind of found that audience, that groundswell of support. And and that's what I'm wondering is like, I guess, you know, this trend of these uh, motorcycle clubs was either so new or that hadn't been put on film before that this was able to draw it in. Because when we watch it, it feels so tame and somewhat insipid. Yeah, I think that is the thing about it being banned. It's like whether you like it or not as a movie, whether you think it's good or not, it is incredibly tame. And we've talked about at least one other movie and probably a few over time that are banned in various countries for various reasons. I mean, the one that comes to mind is Man Bites Dog. And I think that's what, 30 years old or whatever. And and watching that movie now, you can still see like, oh yeah, I, I we can understand why this might've been banned. But this movie is just so, right, it's so tame. It's hard to imagine other than the idea that it reflects this supposed real life uh, phenomenon that they're worried that people would emulate, I guess. Right, that's it, man, yeah. you know? So uh, uh, critics were... Uh, favorable, at least about Marlon Brando. But the one thing that I noticed in, in almost all of the reviews that I found is an incredible amount of pearl clutching here from the critics. So uh, Milton Lubin in The Hollywood Reporter mm. said, here is a splendid example of film craftsmanship from the viewpoint of production, acting, direction. In fact, everything but choice of subject. The Wild One keeps one thoroughly absorbed throughout its 1079 minutes, but it is an unpleasant absorption that certainly cannot be classified as entertaining. The Wild One is certainly not for the family trade, nor would parents want their youngsters to see it. Its main appeal would seem to be those lawless juveniles who may well be inspired to go out and emulate the characters portrayed. Marlon Brando turns in a tremendously powerful performance as the inarticulate, frozen-faced, truculent outlaw who heads the gang of motorcycle hoodlums. John Paxton's dialogue carries a sardonically effective flair, but English subtitles under the jive talk would benefit such squares as this reviewer. Uh, Josh, did you need, um, did you feel like a square? Did you need subtitles here? I did feel a bit like a square just because I'm sure, like, Either the slang terms that they use are all outdated and we no longer use them, or the screenwriter made them up. And I feel like both of those are likely. I, you know, maybe one of my favorite scenes is when they're talking to the old, uh, the old guy at the uh, cafe, right? And they're like, uh, it's just two of these kind of guys in the club. And they're like, you know, it's like this, ramadamadama. Booba la ba, and the other guy's like shimba dooba dee da ba dee ba da ba, and then they just like get off on this like musical interlude that like I don't think would ever happen in real life. Like they're just scatting with each other for no reason. Yeah, I feel like if I were in a motorcycle club in 1953, I would be less concerned about this movie making me look dangerous and more concerned about it making me look dumb. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I mean, and that's the whole thing, and we can get into that more, but, like, when there's an outlaw as, like, the lead character, you have to have a reason to root for the outlaw. And these guys were just a-holes. They are. You know? They really are. And I wonder that because there's this sort of disclaimer at the beginning that makes it sound like, you know, this is this cautionary tale and it makes it seem like maybe the producers of this film intended for you to not root for these outlaws, really, that this is a, a depiction of dangerous people and, and a warning against what could happen if you let these biker gangs into your town. But it's not like the other people are sympathetic either. The townspeople also right. suck. Everyone, everyone except maybe the female lead is... Um you know, just unsympathetic. Right. You're unsympathetic towards Right, them. right. And I think that's a big problem. This is just a bunch of people. This is not like, oh no, what if this happened in my town? This is just like, well, these people are all acting like jerks to each other and they'd all kind of deserve whatever they get. Yeah, it was very strange because one of the opening scenes is, you know, they're in this town, I think in Carbonville and there's like a bike rally and then uh, Brando's, uh, his uh, sidekicks like steal the second place trophy and give it to them, and then they just ride off with the second place trophy. Like we're supposed to root for that, and like this is supposed to be symbolic or something. But um, it just didn't work for me. In that, yeah, regard. and that second place trophy becomes like this this major sort of symbolic item throughout the film. Right. And yeah, I think you're right. We're not going to root for them having stolen the second place trophy. On the other hand, stealing the second place trophy from a motorcycle rally, which is this tiny little cheap looking thing, is not like the worst crime in the world either. So, but that's that's all they do is commit all these like minor, right. you know, like misdemeanors. Yes. They're like, yeah, we're really good at misdemeanors. Yeah, eh? I think that's the thing. <laughs> and in the real life motorcycle rally, it sounds like the worst that these people did was they got drunk and they did some wheelies or whatever, which is also what happens in this film. So, uh, Jay Carmody in the Washington Evening Star said, although it rises to hair raising cinema spectacle. The whole of the wild one contrives to add up to less than the sum of its parts. This is due to the fact that while the production poses the adolescent delinquent problem in brutal and suspenseful terms, it leaves it hanging somewhere below midair. If the ending is not an apology for having brought the subject up, it is at least a confession of not really knowing what to do with it. In its own indecisive terms, however, the Wild One tingles with terror over the tactics of the muscularly strong, mentally and morally weak, and purposeless young. Hmm. Well, I think he's talking about more than just the Wild One here, you know, just the, the youth culture in general we see kind of raise up, uh, you know, as we said a couple years later, Rebel Without a Cause, and then obviously all the way through the 60s, ending with Easy Rider, I think, which is the cap of this one. Yeah, and I think there is definitely the larger idea from these reviewers and certainly also from squares in general that this youth culture is frightening and we are, you know, it's it's unfamiliar and therefore we are scared of it. So, I mean, although I do think he makes a good point that in taking up this subject, it does seem like this movie doesn't really know what to do with it. Like we were saying, we, it doesn't really have a good perspective like are we supposed to sympathize with johnny marlon brando's character because he's a bit sensitive and he's maybe had an abusive childhood and is this movie trying to get you to understand why people would engage in delinquent behavior or is it just sort of trying to get you 
frightened over bikers coming into your town? Is it trying to approve of vigilante justice? Is it trying to criticize vigilante justice? I don't think it really succeeds at any of those things. I, I agree. And, you know, in the research you read, like they had, you know, members of motorcycle clubs on set and that famous line, like, what are you rebelling against? And the guy goes, what do you got? Like, that's a line that one of the actual motorcyclists said. But, you know, Brando, we got to take into account here is already on the ascent to becoming the biggest star in Hollywood. And the year after, he really cements that that in the 50s. But this is maybe more iconic as far as the look, you know, that kind of uh, beefy hunk that he is right there. Yes. And, and, and he is very striking. In, oh, yeah, you know? absolutely. And I think if anything, if this movie succeeds at anything, it is showcasing Marlon Brando and that maybe the writing isn't all that good. But Brando's performance makes you think that, like, there could be some depth to this guy in a way that's not okay. in the screenplay. Yeah, well, he had already done Streetcar right before this. And um, was it Caesar? He did one other one before this that like he was nominated for like Oscars three years in a row before this came out or when this came out. So he was uh, I think we already knew Streetcar was 51. Viva Zapata was 52 and Julius Caesar was 53. So he had already had three best actor nominations in a row. And I think Streetcar between the show where he started and the movie just like rocket hit him up there and all of that stuff that you wanted to feel from him you felt there but maybe it was all kind of underneath you. yeah i don't know and I, so I think we've talked about in our other marlon brando episodes i don't care for him very much even in some of his more acclaimed performances i really couldn't stand him in a streetcar named desire um but here he's more understated. I feel like my problem with Brando a lot of the time is that he just is like constantly drawing attention to himself at the expense of everything else in the movie. And I mean, he does do that here, but the everything else in the movie is so worthless that it's like, I don't really mind if he does it. I kind of felt like he was too understated here and everyone is drawing attention to themselves in this movie. Like this is for Brando, you know, the, the godfather of modern acting, if you will, right? Yeah. Like, this performance maybe is a little understated, but everyone else is just like going in that big, like scene eating style of the fifties that I don't care for. Right. Um, and you know, Lee Marvin, the co-star of uh, this, who we talked about in uh, your pick in 67 there, yes. right. Who won an Oscar uh, in the sixties. He was talking at this point in time, he and Brando didn't like each other. And he was talking about how overrated he felt Brando's style of acting was. But Lee Marvin is hamming it up here like crazy. Yeah, oh, Lee Marvin is absolutely hamming it up here. And I thought it was kind of fun. I mean, it's definitely not on the level of Brando. And I think the thing about that is you can really, like Brando is taking this seriously. Whether he really respected the material or not, he is doing everything that he can to make this a real character and give it the full weight of his acting ability. And Lee Marvin is just having fun. And like, I feel like those are both reasonable approaches for this kind of dumb exploitation material. Right. And with Brando, I think that I'm I'm almost sure it was Stan because Stanley Kramer yet again. Yeah, you're you're your nemesis Stanley Kramer here in this uh, season between this and uh yeah. the five thousand fingers of Dr. T. Yeah, he's not making movies for me in nineteen fifty three, that's no. clear. But I think he just did this as like a favor to Stanley Kramer because he helped him start. Right, it. right. And this does seem like the kind of thing that would be beneath somebody who'd been already nominated for multiple Oscars. So uh finally. Marjorie Adams in the Boston Globe 
was very alarmed <laughs> at what was happening in this film. She said, menace, ruthless, terrifying, and inevitable dominates the wild one. With Marlon Brando and his black rebels, an outlaw gang of hoodlum motorcyclists swooping down on a peaceful town, the picture becomes as violent as a Nazi invasion. Under the production genius of Stanley Kramer and the understanding direction of Laszlo Benedek, The Wild One stands out as a sociological study that is as hard and taut as a whiplash. It relates the battle between vandalism and order, hoodlamism and decency, and the brooding, reckless, cold eyes of Brando express the disturbance and muddled understanding which brings about such actions. Oh, dear. Yeah, elsewhere in the review, I, it didn't really fit, but she mentions that it was inspired by this uh, this incident in California and says, like, and I hope it would never happen here, you know? Yeah. Imagine what she would have written as she reviewed Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how long she was working as the Boston Globe film critic there, but we don't want to think about that. Right. So, Josh, you had mentioned Brando and kind of what he felt about it. And I got a lot of good quotes from him uh, on this thing. Uh, One and uh, and yeah, why not? Let's give it a try, Josh, here. Before the wild one, I thought about killing my father. (laughs) After the wild one, I decided I shouldn't actually kill him, but pull his out his corneas. Wow. Okay. That was, I thought you meant like, let's go for it. Like, let's hear these quotes. But uh, that is a Brando. It's not. No, it's not. And it's really more like late period Brando, I feel like, than the way that it sounded in 1953. I mean, yeah, I don't know. You don't understand, Charlie. I could have been someone. (laughs) Okay. You know, now do your impression of Jake LaMotta doing Brando. (laughs) Go back to our Raging Bull episode. I think this is also him because he said, we started out to do something worthwhile to explain the psychology of the hipster, but somewhere along the way we went off track. The result was that instead of finding why young people tend to bunch into groups that seek expression, all that we did was show the violence, which I think really kind of sums it up. Yeah, it really does. And I think that that shows that what Brando seemed to be interested in was that psychology was getting deep into who this character is and that what is that's what he's probably trying to do. But the movie is not really supporting him in that. I agree, sir. So, uh. Obviously, you had not seen this before, as we discussed. Uh, it was on the list of, you know, major flicks to check off the boxes there. So. Sure, sure. Yeah, not, not, neither had I. And like I said, I'm I'm sort of uh, not super keen on Brando. I mean, I've seen him in a bunch of obviously super major films, Godfather, Apocalypse Now, Last Tango in Paris, that kind of stuff, uh, Streetcar. But it's not something that I would necessarily have been inclined to seek out. So thank you, Jason, for getting me to watch this film. Um, I'm here to serve. You are indeed. So, uh, Dave, had you seen this? What are your thoughts on Brando movies? I had not seen it. I have not seen a lot. I mean, I've seen some of those later ones, like you were talking about Godfather and stuff like that, but not a lot. And I was really looking forward to it, but hey, (laughs) not good. All right. Dave hates beefy hunks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, any uh, more quotes you want to read in your Brando voice or any other background Uh, things? uh, uh, Let's switch it up there, Josh. In an episode of Happy Days. Joni says to Fonzie, I saw the wild one, to which Fonzie replies, Grammy Flick, if I was Lee Marvin, I'd have cracked Brando's skull with that trophy. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like obviously Fonzie is a silly sitcom character, but I feel like the characters in this movie are not all that far removed from Fonzie. Hey, Mr. C. Yeah, I feel like I'm 
putting him in the sweat hogs right now of welcome back Cotter instead of in uh, happy days. But yeah, no, I don't know. I mean, look, the other good quote I had was from a sociologist, Dr. Suzanne McDonald Walker, who said Marlon Brando sporting leather jacket, jeans and a moody glare became a cultural icon summing up the road in all its maverick glory. And I see that, but I wish this movie had more of the road. All they actually did was like ride from one town to another and then quote unquote terrorize that town. Right. Yeah. And unlike, say, Easy Rider, which obviously was, you know, an outgrowth of that is a road. Yeah, that is a road movie. That is all about them traveling from one place to another and encountering different situations. And that's not what's going on here. So uh, we'll come back then in a moment and talk more of our general thoughts on The Wild One. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1953, we are talking about Jason's regretful pick, The Wild One, starring Marlon Brando. I mean, the whole season's regretful for me. <laughs> I hate to hear that, but but I'm with you that this is not a great movie. And I mean, I think it is, a as we've been talking about, it is a culturally significant movie. But I think unlike some movies like this, even now, a lot of people, the response to this in, from a lot of people seems to be like, it's interesting in its effect on pop culture, but it's not really a good movie. So, I mean, you know, I hadn't watched Easy Rider until the last couple of years. And I wonder if you're watching that for the first time, like I did now, you would you would take it more as a cultural piece. Easy Rider is a better movie than this, than this right? But you would take it more as a cultural piece than like a fully functioning film at this point in time. I think. Yeah, I'm with you in that. I also saw Easy Rider. I don't know. It, maybe it's like 10 or more years ago now, but certainly obviously way, way removed from its cultural context. And I think I liked it more than this movie, but I also mainly just saw it as a cultural touchstone rather than something I was really into as a film. And I mean, Easy Rider, you can also look at it and and see the kind of not only in terms of representing the biker culture, but in the way that they approach it as as filmmakers, that it is pushing boundaries in certain ways. And you can appreciate that. But yeah, I don't think that I particularly enjoyed Easy Rider. Right. Well, the characters are more honest. It showcases the actual biker, like you know, the open road better. And it's funny because it was probably heavily influenced by Brando and you know, his kind of realistic style of acting. Oh, right? yeah, so, absolutely. I mean, I feel like Easy Rider would not exist without this movie. I agree. Um, this thing, it just uh, stalls out, if you will, Josh. <laughs> yes. You know, uh, very quickly, it's literally they ride from one town to the next. And then um, a lot of these, you know, a lot of the townies want them to leave, but they decide they're going to stick around. Brando flirts with uh, a waitress in a very ridiculous, scenario right where it's like uh i don't necessarily understand either of their actions with each other yeah you know? he comes very close to sexually assaulting her in some uncomfortable scenes and she is on the one hand she is asserting herself more than you might expect in a movie from 1953 but on the other hand she does kind of fall for him because he's so uh abusive which is not a great look I don't know if that's why she falls for him. I think they just took it as like, uh, look, I'm not defending it. Okay, so so save your letters. Okay, yeah. <laughs> but I think save it those was stamps. more. <laughs> I think it was more of like she fell for his 
how masculine he was, right? In that in that uh, iteration of that idea. Right. I mean, it's equating masculinity with that kind of uh, aggression and, again, near assault there. And it, but he does actually save her from assault. He saves her from assault by other people so that he can drive her to a secluded place and assault her himself. Well, I don't think he assaulted her. There. He, they he, like kissed each other, right? He, well, okay. He kisses her in a clearly a manner that is not consenting. And then he backs off from doing more than that and even sort of semi-apologizes. So again, I suppose by the standards of this era, that is a, a progressive stance maybe, but it's not, it's not good behavior. Yeah, I mean, it's the 50s and apparently everyone is assaulting everyone in the good old <laughs> days of love yes. uh, or whatever. Like, But I mean, it's just one of the many problems of this movie, true, right? True. You know, it's not like that's the one thing that stood out here. So, you know, we talked about Lee Marvin as this like rival gang leader, but they used to be like one gang and they're like, are they rivals? But he wants him to get back together and they have these silly fights and, and Lee Marvin and Mar Marlon Brando are definitely acting in two different movies, yes. even though they're on screen together. Sure, right. Sure. Like, there's a lot of problems going on here. Jeff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when the rival gang shows up, the Beatles and yeah. um, they're even more cartoonish. Right. The the Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, the the main group run by Johnny Marlon Brando's character, they have that iconic look with the black leather jackets and the the sort of askew caps or whatever. And the Beatles come in and they're dressed like a circus troupe, basically. And one of them has some weird, like large pipe, I think he's got going on. And they look like they're maybe about to play the bagpipes or something. I mean, it's so, so silly. And Lee Marvin yeah. fits in with that in that his performance is, like you said, is is silly. He's clearly like, this is ridiculous. I'm just going to ham it up here. And it's fun, but it doesn't fit with what Brando's doing. We, uh, we always talk about simple problems in movies that if they actually wanted to fix them uh, would, be, would rectify the movie and solve the problem in three minutes. And that's really act three of the movie where Johnny's riding away from these people who assault him. And one, one of the townsfolk throws a tire iron at him. And, you know, he falls off the bike and the bike careens into the old um, old man, I think, Jimmy from the cafe and kills him. Right. And then Johnny gets arrested. But it's like, eh, you know, the whole town saw that uh, there was a tire iron thrown at him. Right. And, you know, they it, it was a simple problem to fix that was very drawn out, even in an 80 minute movie. Right. And I mean, I suppose you could argue that the point there is that they just want an excuse to arrest Johnny because he's the bad motorcycle guy and it doesn't really matter that people saw that eventually they do it does come out and i mean and part of it to to give this some credit the idea when someone tells the cop hey actually what happened was someone threw a tire iron at the motorcycle and that was what made him fall off um the cop is like why didn't you say something earlier so i mean there is a level yeah. of like okay um we see this and the reason why they didn't say something earlier is of course they have this prejudice against the youth but so does the movie. You know, again, the movie is not approving of any of this behavior, which, like you're saying, is really is misdemeanor level stuff and is mainly just that these guys are all assholes. Right. And Johnny commits the least amount of crimes of the entire group. Yes. That, yes, he does. But he is the, quote, ringleader. So he gets blamed for it. But yeah, I mean, just on like basic courtesy behavior, like forget committing crimes. Right. They're just. 
They're just dicks. Yeah, they're just dicks. They're dicks to poor Mary Murphy, the nice waitress who, like, even the people who are on their side at the first, right? At first, her and her uncle who owns the cafe, who's like excited, like, oh, look at all this business I'm going to get because these right, guys. He wants the money. Yeah. yeah. And he's all on their side. He's in favor of them. Even the the one local cop who is Mary Murphy's father is like, hey, let's not create some sort of problem here. Everybody chill out. These guys are fine. Let's just let them have their fun and just be nice. And then they just, you know, dismiss him and treat him like crap. Everyone sucks in this movie. Josh. They do. Like every every character's just the a garbage person, maybe except mm-hmm. other than that cop is, you know, right. Uh, he's the nice cop. He's trying, so. although, you know, he just kind of it's at a certain point. I think he just kind of throws up his hands and is like he he defers to the out of town cops or whatever. And let's yeah, that's it. that the sheriff played by uh, J.C. Flippin, who was like a famous vaudevillian comedian. I thought he did a good job. He was good. In the yeah. Movie. The guy who comes in sort of toward the end and, and has to resolve everything after things have descended into chaos. And uh, Robert, this whole movie's chaos. (laughs) Yes, it is. Uh, Robert Keith, we should say, is the one who plays the the only cop in the town who is the the female lead's father, um, who's trying to sort of keep keep the peace. Yeah, Mary Murphy, and and none of them. I mean, obviously, this movie is Marlon Brando's movie. That is what it's known for. As we're talking about, Lee Marvin is the other really strong presence here, who comes in like I don't know, is it halfway or something through the movie and shakes things up. Otherwise, the acting here is pretty forgettable. Um, you know, Mary Murphy is not exactly a match for, especially after Streetcar Named Desire. She's not a match for Marlon Brando here as a romantic lead. Yeah. So I think we, we you know, we don't need to keep harping here, man. It, well, it just didn't work for us on any level. Is there anything you that know? you liked about it? Uh, it made me go back and rewatch On the Waterfront from the year after. And that's a five-star masterpiece. And Brando at his best. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't seen On the Waterfront in quite some time, but that, you know, which he won another Oscar for. So, um, Well, that was his first Oscar. Oh, okay. Oh, his best, first win, yeah, so. you know, after being nominated. Yeah, he, yeah. yeah, it was nominated four times in the 50s. So as I mentioned, and then Sayonara in 57. In 58, he had a movie called The Young Lions. And that was really his last hit. Until The Godfather. So he had gone from the top to like not bankable at all to this major comeback. But, um, you know, we know Brando, his personality and his career were mercurial. So, no, I mean, I guess to me, it just shows like it, it was such a pleasure rewatching on the waterfront. It just shows to me what I gravitate towards in the 50s. Right. You know, that's Kazan. Um, that screenplay is so just it's an amazing screenplay and then you have all these like kind of real new york style characters working in that new york style of acting that like it, even back then that's that's kind of what i go for yeah i mean and i i like i said when we talked about the robe i really enjoy classical style acting i don't think that that was like a great movie for us to uh, look at with it but or but yeah i mean there's nothing realistic this movie despite being supposedly inspired by a real incident feels entirely phony throughout I agree. So, D- Dave, did you like anything about this? I hated this movie, guys. Uh, oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that I I actually had to pause it halfway through. I know, obviously, it's a beloved classic. I paused it halfway through to look up if this was like a parody. Like, I was like, this is the <laughs> wow. cheesiest, corniest. Everybody is so lame in this movie. Uh, Brando is so lame in this movie. I I I hated everything about it. 
Okay. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I now I feel redeemed for yeah. picture. Because yeah, you wanted you made Dave watch a movie that he yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah. No, I mean, I think one of the things though is that this is not necessarily a beloved classic, that it is of cultural importance that we'll talk about, I'm sure, in a minute for the way it influenced style and for Brando's sort of career arc, but like it's not necessarily regarded as a great movie. Mm. So I think I think we can all be this is unlike Tokyo story or something recent where uh, where Jason is hating on something that that people think is a genius film. I think we can all be forgiven here for not liking this movie. Yeah. Josh, let's rate yeah, this let's thing, huh? Out of five flying tire irons. Huh? <laughs> sure, why not? I gave it two. And uh, once Dave goes lower, I'm not going to argue with it. But I gave it two, two flying tire irons. It's not as bad as the two worst movies I've seen this season, which were one and a half. So I had to go all the way to wow. two. Wow, <laughs> Jason just really hating on all of cinema lately. Uh, I'm going to give it two and a half, despite the fact that I don't know that I liked it that much more than you did. But I felt like it was a worthwhile experience for for sort of cinema history. And I didn't hate watching it. It was just sort of not much of anything. So two and a half tire irons for me. Dave, uh, how are you going to rate this? The lowest rating I've ever given one tire iron. Wow. <laughs> yeah. All right. So yeah. Dave, is this is this your least favorite movie that we've ever talked about? I'm pretty sure. Podcast? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Wow. The least favorite of the whole show. I yeah. love this. Yeah. To be fair, Dave did not watch a lot of the movies in our early days. Yeah. But, right. One of these well, days I'll go back okay. and catch up and see if anything beats this, but I, I doubt it. Yeah. My least favorite movie we've ever watched on this show and Dave's are both from this season. Man, that is that is a shame and and sort of bad. You, you know, to that point, real quick, I, I felt I was gonna be in the same boat as Jason this season because I, I also have a little bit of trouble with some of like the older acting styles and stuff like that. But I've found that I've liked a lot of the movies we talked about this season. But this one really leaned I, I, in. I gotta just you know. I need to defend myself real fast. It's not just acting styles. Like it's not like when we watch Dr. T, I was like, man, everything worked except the yeah. acting style for me. Just one of many problems. I think it's this is a very hokey time period. Yeah. And, you know, they're they're not trying to there's nothing here that's taking chances. that's moving cinema forward. That's even really enjoyable for me so mm -hmm. far. You know, I mean, I know Tokyo Story is a classic. I like the wages of fear so far this season as probably the best. And the Kubrick movies are fine. But it's interesting how from this till the next year you get on the waterfront that that to me is the biggest like uh really just two ends of a spectrum in filmmaking yeah well i mean that's a lot due to what brando brought to acting so maybe we'll talk more of that in the legacy of the wild one Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this episode of our season on the films of 1953. We are talking about Jason's pick, The Wild One, which he uh, decided to pick something new and it was uh, maybe not uh, what he hoped for. But yeah, but, you know, Dave uh, has a miserable experience with it. So that's a win for me. Sure. Josh, I can see when we're talking about how much 1953 has let us down in some ways. Your heart is breaking, so that's a win for me. So 
you know, look, these are all valuable experiences. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yes. Making making the two of us unhappy is what you're really here for. So <laughs> well, I don't want. I'm not trying to make the two of you unhappy. I'm just enjoying your unhappiness mm, overall. Mm -hmm. That's good. But yeah, look, it uh, it's I I do like the idea of us going out and taking a few more chances and maybe picking some movies we've never seen before. Yeah, and I don't regret having seen this. Really, like I said, I mean, I Me feel neither. like this is. This is a a important milestone here, especially for Brando, as we're saying, this is part of his ascension as this major superstar. And as you mentioned, Jason, just a year later, he made On the Waterfront. He won an Oscar for that. And already, as you can see in the contrast between him and most of the other people in this movie, he is bringing this sort of naturalistic or the method style of acting two films in a way that it hadn't really been present before. So, I mean, yeah, he just, he's so iconic. How do you, how it's tough to place like certain performances of him because we know, you know, uh, like Josh, are you, you were saying you don't like a lot of his major performances. I mean, right? most of what I've seen him in, I have not cared for him it, whether I, wh Godfather? whether I, I mean, sure. But I feel like the Godfather is great not because of Marlon Brando, you know? Yeah. So even if it's a movie that I do like, I'm generally looking at his presence in it as one of the weaker elements or one of the elements that I don't care for. You haven't watched Waterfront in a Not time. in a while. I mean, I, I haven't watched The Godfather in a while either. Um, but I remember, again, I feel like in On the Waterfront, I did like it. But I find Brando, despite the fact that he's known for this, quote, naturalistic style of acting, I find him just so much. He just like sucks up all the energy from everything else around him that I, I, I find it distracting. But there are people who are big presences in real life. Right? And I'm you sure know? that he was, but I feel like it's detrimental a lot of the time to everything else that's going on around him. And if, if the movie isn't just about that, or if he isn't meant to be a character, like I feel like he's better in a smaller roles. Like you can see him in Apocalypse Now and he plays this like mythical figure who has this 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 presence that does sort of it feels like this black hole sucking up everything around it he works there and you you finally get to him and it's this you know it's this mythical quest when they finally find him that makes sense and he's not in the rest of the movie really yeah i mean and that's got its all you know its whole other list of marlon brando stories and how difficult that was to sure. film and everything but he was you know, if, if I'm not mistaken in that one, right, like he decided not to memorize any lines. He would post notes like against the walls and against other places in the cave to like give himself cues. And like what they got was, a, you know, magic, right? Or some one of the most iconic performances in movie history. So you just don't know. I, I would disagree with you on Waterfront. I think like, you know, that's that's just a home run all the way through, including him. But um yeah, I get it. I mean, he's not for everyone. Let's go with Right. That. And again, I haven't seen On the Waterfront in quite a while. I can't respond point by point. And maybe I would feel differently if I saw it now. But I also think that that idea of him not memorizing lines was not just a thing of him being difficult or or being sort of lazy or, I, I don't know, uh, mercurial or whatever in his later career like he he was opposed to the idea of memorizing lines like artistically and that started yeah, no, early in his career right and i can understand that in something like the kurt speech right where he's 
Um, he is this kind of, uh, like you said, mythical figure, and he is uh, become like a god or a king to like the uh, the natives there. So maybe he does have this whatever flowing through his veins where it's a spontaneous nature to him. So yeah, I don't know. Um, I hope when we uh if we're over three with them now i hope we get to uh at least one for four yeah at some point in time. i mean this is more so than the other movies that we talked about this is a well-known respected performance of his but i think the movie overall isn't on the level of some of the great movies that he made if we talk about on the waterfront or the godfather or apocalypse now uh or streetcar named desire even i'm sure we'll have something more positive to say about the movies themselves i mean look this kind of character we know influenced james dean we know influenced elvis presley right and elvis uh they said for jailhouse rock but i think elvis overall probably took something from this character and james dean we know did and i think rebel without a cause is an incredible movie and uh and elvis a good entertainer yeah. no obviously a great an all-time great right so and Brando sizzles like he's very good looking. He's got a very good look here. It's kind of like I said, that Marilyn Monroe white dress thing, like very sex symbol of the 50s. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the the main legacies of this film is what you're talking about there is that people saw this movie and they saw Brando in this movie and they emulated it. They didn't emulate biker violence. They emulated looking cool. <laughs> and so that was something. And people like Elvis or James Dean who were more iconic maybe than the wild one or more artistically successful made this look even more popular in this style, even more popular. And then it's been parodied also so much that I feel like maybe Dave, this was one thing that you felt like when you were watching this is that this look and this, this sort of approach, it seems silly to us now because it has become cartoonish. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it and that's why I was like, isn't this supposed to be the serious one? And so while watching it, I'm like, this is just as funny to watch as, I don't know, like a Will Ferrell doing it. Like, you know, it would be the same level of seriousness. Yeah, but I need to jump back yes. in because like, Josh, we talked about, uh, what was the movie we watched, Lee Marvin, your pick? Uh, Point uh, Blank. Right, and we all thought he's very good at yes. that, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, he was a huge star in the 60s. He won an Oscar for Cat Ballou, uh, but... He was not good in this film either. I mean, I don't think he was not good. I just think he was doing something different than what Brando was doing and that maybe his performance is kind of campy. But I would have liked for this movie to be campier because it is such a silly thing. Well, well, the director, Laszlo Benedek, uh, he directed The Death of a Salesman and uh, the last movie Dorothy Dandridge was in was Malaga or Moment of Danger. So, you know, I just... Don't think we can pile this all on one person or the other. I just think this is a total miss. Right. And I mean, if we want to talk about Laszlo Benedek, he was not maybe the the most um, notable director. I don't know what the process was for finding someone to direct this film, but maybe someone who had a, more of an artistic vision could have done something else with this. I mean, this is really the most notable work of his entire career. He was kind of a journeyman. He directed some more movies in the US and in Europe and ended up directing a lot of TV, and maybe that was the right place for him. But this is the kind of thing that perhaps could have used a more visionary director. Right. Like, what is this movie if Ilya Kazan is directing? <laughs> right? Sure. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and again, who knows what the process was for Stanley Kramer finding the person to direct this, and maybe he didn't want someone 
with more of a vision because he just it's an exploitation movie. But again, problems, right? Like not that go beyond there. One, we don't have anyone likable, whether that's on purpose or not. We have no one to root for. They all suck, right? Two, it's a movie about bikers on the road, except there is no road. They go from one town, town A to town B, and that's the entire you know, the journey of this trip. Like there are problems structurally way beyond just performance. Oh yeah. No, no, no. I mean, I, I don't disagree. I'm just saying that someone else, a director might've come in and worked with that mediocre screenplay and with these actors and delivered something with more artistic merit or whatever. Um, and Benedict is just kind of not that guy. So Josh, uh, pop culture references, like you mentioned the Beatles, there is a picture on uh, the cover of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band of Brando from here. And, you know, the rumor is, did they take their name from the rival gang? It's been spoofed on, of course, The Simpsons. And everybody loves Raymond, which is interesting. But uh, did you know this? In Twin Peaks, Michael Sarah plays Wally Brando, who dresses like Johnny Strabler and does a Marlon Brando impression. I, I did not. I assume that's in the revival of Twin Peaks, which I haven't watched. But that. Well, yes, I don't think Michael Sarah was doing that at age one. Josh. You know, he's he, he's talented. Maybe he could have pulled it off. <laughs> um, I so I haven't I haven't watched the Twin Peaks, um, the revival season. So I have not seen that. But that does sound amazing and weird. Um, and yeah, this is such a a huge pop culture thing. Uh, the band uh, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club takes their name from it. And just when you think of, even now, when you think of like biker, you still think of the look that is created in this film. Right. Uh, I thought I, here's another Brando quote. More than most of the parts I've played in the movies or on stage, I related to Johnny. Because of this, I believe I played him as a more sensitive and sympathetic than the script envisioned. There's a line in the picture where he snarls, nobody tells me what to do. That's exactly how I felt all my life, which we've kind of alluded right, to. Right, right. And as we keep saying, Brando is doing more here or attempting to do more here than really the movie is is giving him. Yeah, other than Lee Marvin, all these supporting actors in this film are, don't really have notable careers. Mary Murphy did character roles. She was on TV. She retired from acting in 1975 when she was in her 40s. Uh, Robert Keith, who plays the police chief here, was a very prolific character actor through the 1960s, and he died in 1966. But none of these people are particularly like you're going to watch a movie for them. Well, Roy Teal, who played Frank, was Sheriff Roy Coffey on Bonanza. So Ray Teal. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's a pretty iconic. Sure. Thing, right? I mean, but so. again, it's it's a it's a sort of I don't know that I haven't watched Bonanza if that's one of the main characters or not, but. Marlon Brando and Lee Marvin almost starred together again in 1972 in Deliverance by John Borman. Wow. Uh, they were cast in the film until um, Marvin told Borman that he thought that he and Brando were too old for their roles. Mm. And that's when Borman agreed and cast John Boyd and Burt Reynolds. But that would have been interesting. That would have brought a whole new energy to that film, I think. I'm curious to see what Brando would have done with that. Um, so the last legacy thing I just wanted to mention to, to show how silly the trumped up portrayal of the actual event was in Hollister, California. They continued having motorcycle rallies every year. And in 1997, they celebrated the 50th anniversary of the supposed dangerous riot that had occurred well, in their what town. They said, <laughs> right. Because they said in that 47 riot, like that there was like stage pictures of like, oh, look at this dangerous biker who's drunken out of control. Right. right? So 
you know, that makes sense. Yeah. So silly stuff that, uh, you know, I'm sure we still get versions of that today with moral panic over whatever, you know, what teens are doing on TikTok or something. Mm-hmm. Josh, let's plug some social media. Sure, let's do it. <laughs> Josh, we're at awesomemovieyear.com, awesome movie on Facebook and Instagram, awesome movie pod on Twitter. I'm Jason Harris Comedy or J Harris Comedy on all the socials. My website, go for Jason, was stolen by a bike gang and traded for a second place trophy somewhere along the lines. But you can still find Eat This Comedy in the Trivia Party all over Instagram. And Dave tells me we're getting closer to starting to run some movie trivia on zoom in the popcorn and puzzle pieces oh yeah that'll be fun so uh maybe i'll join in on that but uh for now you can find me at joshbellhateseverything.com where i may have written about some marlon brando stuff one time but it's long ago and uh, josh bell hates everything on facebook at signal bleed on twitter and at signal bleed on letterboxd and listen to our producer david rosen's awesome podcast piecing it together Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at Piecing Pod and check out that popcorn and puzzle pieces group that Jason was just talking about. Yeah, that'll be fun to do some uh, some trivia in there. So, yeah. Jason, what movie are you going to hate in our next episode? <laughs> well, hopefully I won't hate it, right? It's a Fellini movie. We are going back to the film festivals. Obviously, Sundance wasn't around yet. So I think we're going to Venice. Is that right, Yes, Josh? the Venice Film Festival. One of six winners at the Venice Film Festival. It was a six-way tie at the Venice Film Festival in 1950. Wow. Yeah, crazy. I'm interested in, I mean, you kind of cho- laid out what we were doing for 1953. So I'm interested. Josh, out of the six winners at Venice, you chose Federico Fellini's I Vitaloni for us to cover. And uh, I'm excited for that, Josh. I am. Too. I'm predicting Jason's going to like this one, by the way. I gonna really give think it my so. best shot. We'll see what happens. So though. tune in next time for <laughs> I Vitaloni. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas. <laughs> so, there's there's the endorsement for the film. Um, but, you know, in 1967, we did Easy Rider. I mean, you know, we got a kind that of... That is 100% t- not true. Well, okay. we, we never talked about back. Easy Rider, which didn't come out in 1967. I thought it did. It was I think it's 69, 68 or 69. Well, I watched I've it, watched so, it too, yeah, but so. not for the podcast. Yeah. That's on the okay. Patreon. Let me, let me try again. Let me try again. So. <laughs>